Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Scripture is Mark 2, verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, The wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Some of you might know that I enjoy painting with oil paints. When I was first learning, I actually learned in prison. You know, there's nothing else to do. You've got to pass the time somehow, right? And so I learned how to paint. There was another man there who had painted, who painted amazingly. He had done these beautiful landscapes, and I asked him, where'd you get all this stuff? I didn't even know you could do this here. He told me where to get it, and I started painting. Um, one of the things he taught me when I first sat down and I started learning was that it's not about putting paint on the canvas that is of primary importance when you're learning to paint. It's about looking around you and seeing the world in a completely new way. And so we would be out in the yard or we would be looking at a painting. Instead of saying, do you see this tree? He would say, do you see how the light casts on one side with the sun side? And you see how on the shadow side of the trunk, there's a blue tint that comes from a reflection of the sky that's called the cool side. Everything that has three dimensions in a landscape has either a warm or a cool side. Suddenly, I began to see life in a totally different way. Everything that I would look at, I would not just see what it was, but I would see its shape. I would see how those shapes fit together. And I oftentimes when you see people painting, you'll see them actually look and squint. And they'll close their eyes really, you know, just barely being able to see through. The point is to be able to, is to in order to see the, the shapes of the image that they're trying to paint and not the details because often we get lost in them. What we do, and when we're looking at a painting, a painting does more than just simply reproduce an image. I swear, I'm going to figure out how to use this thing up here without having to do this. I want to start over. 
And because you guys love me, we can do that. Many of you know I like to paint. <laughs> I suddenly was paying attention to the contrast between the colors and the texture of the leaves and the bark. Not only that, but I learned that a painting is not like a photograph. A painting is not just a two-dimensional flattened image. A painting has texture. In a painting, when you look closely, you can see brush strokes that catch light in a certain way and make the, picture, the painting come alive. If you ever pay attention, like at the Art Institute, when you're looking at paintings, you'll see that artists will take very, um, be very careful in the direction that they actually paint across oil paints. If they paint in a horizontal direction, it leaves the brush strokes in the paint, and when light comes from above and hits those brush strokes, it changes the way the painting looks. If they do a vertical stroke, the light doesn't hit it the same way, and it looks a lot different. And so each stroke, when a painter is making a painting, is very exact. This, for instance... Monet, when you look at, one, or the other impressionists, when you look, um, or Van Gogh, you look, it just looks like this hodgepodge of different colors, of these dots all put together, and as you stand further back, the image becomes clear, but as you get closer, it sort of gets jumbled. But did you know that Van Gogh never put the paint, his brush to the canvas until he had decided what was going to be there, the color it was going to be, and then the direction of the stroke? He was very intentional about the way he placed the texture, the color, and the movement on the painting. And today, what seems in some ways to be an, an unnuanced representation of life actually turned out to be very, very intentional. He looked carefully at what he was painting before he put it on the canvas. You know, my previous presuppositions about what life looked like around me were totally transformed when someone taught me how to paint. Suddenly, I was seeing things I had never seen before, bees on a flower, where I would have just walked by and not paid attention. Suddenly, I was looking at the exact color of that flower and the bee that was in it and the shadow that was on that insect and so on and so forth. Today, I want to talk to you about presuppositions. That's really what this passage is today uh, that we're talking about. I want to talk to you about preconceived notions and old ideas. You see, we each have something of a painting of God in our mind. We have a painting of what the Christian life looks like. We have a painting based on our presuppositions about what the Christian life and godliness and righteousness looks like. See, we all have a painting of a landscape of the kingdom of God in our head and our hearts. And as we look at the world around us, through our own presuppositions, we recreate, to recreate life on our heart's canvas uh, as we think it should be. Let me say this in another way. We see life through the filter of what we think we already know. And it blinds us to things. It prevents us from seeing the true reality around us because we're assuming and we're filling in the blanks with what we think we already know. These perspectives and presuppositions, these old ideas can really serve to obscure a clear image of who God is, of who the Bible is, of what it means to live the righteous life. And the worst part about it is we're often so unaware of them. And so today I want us to begin thinking about a little bit what ways am I seeing God, the Bible, righteousness through a lens of my own presuppositions. So for instance, many of us grew up in a certain church tradition. Maybe some of you grew up Catholic, maybe some of you grew up Baptist, maybe some of you grew up with no Christian background at all. When we come to the Christian faith now as adults, we often will understand our faith today through the lens of where we came, even if there's a lot of difference. 
Similarly, the way we understand God our Father is often, for better or for worse, filtered through our understanding of our own earthly father. So we bring a presupposition to life into the way we understand God. So we need to understand that this is happening to us and that we cannot import in many ways these old ideas. You may have noticed we're in Mark 2, 18 through 22, so we're flying by some passages. This is the bottom line. It's not that they're not important. It's not that this one is more important. It's that I lined up Easter to land on Easter. And in order to do that, we had to take some passages out. And so this just happens to be one of a couple of those texts before this. So we are in uh, 2, 18 through 22. So take out your Bibles with me. We also have it up here if you want. I want to go through this passage line by line. And I want us to begin to see how people misunderstood Jesus. They asked him questions, how Jesus adjusted their mindset, and how we can apply the lessons in this passage uh, today to our own lives. So the first principle we're going to talk about today is old ideas obscure a clear picture of Christ and his kingdom. Old ideas can obscure a clear picture of Christ and his kingdom. Verse 18. And now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Okay. The question is, is what was fasting? We know today before we go get certain medical procedures or tests that we have to be, you know, nothing by mouth for a certain amount of time. And we, there's a lot of confusion. I did, you know, just some Google searches even on fasting and read what just some of the popular sites say, the popular ideas of fasting. And it's really sort of all over the place. But in the Bible, fasting is primarily, figure 90% or more of the time, the abstinence from food and drink for a period of time for a spiritual purpose. All right. There's confusion about what fasting is and what it does. Sometimes you'll hear of people fasting if they want something accomplished in their life. If they want to unleash the power of God in their life, they fast. Okay? This is not a biblical notion of fasting. The biblical idea of fasting is that we abstain from food and drink, and it can be other things as well, for the purpose of looking only and focusing primarily on God. What it really is is a confession saying that man does not live by bread alone, but by the very words of God. It's a recognition that God is of primary importance in our life, even over the things of this world, the things that we ultimately would say we need, food and water. It's a way for us to sort of align our hearts with the will of God, because in the end, it does nothing to change God or his will. It changes us and our ability to understand it, receive it, accept it, and apply it in our lives. So these people come during this time, John and the Pharisees were fasting. Now let, me, let me go back and just say this about fasting too. In the Old Testament, God only commanded fasting one time. Once. Does anyone know what that one time is? No? Okay. The one time that God commanded fasting in the Old Testament was during the Day of Atonement. It was a 24-hour fast. They were supposed to not eat, not drink, and afflict themselves. It was supposed to be a day of sorrow. We... Uh, still hear about it being celebrated today. It's the Yom Kippur. That's what the Day of Atonement is. It is the day that the high priest would uh, sacrifice an animal to atone for the sins of Israel. It was on that day that God commanded a national fast. As you read through the Old Testament, there are other times that fasting was sort of customary as well. It was during times of national tragedy. So if there were a war, if there were a famine, probably pretty easy to fast during a famine, but if there were a famine, if there was pestilence, something along those lines happening within the nation, they would call a national fast. Another time would be uh, during national days of remembrance, okay? And people would abstain from eating and drinking as a way to give honor or to remember or to grow closer to God during that time. 
And finally, uh, fasting was also used during times of personal devotion. If someone was struggling with a particular sin or an attitude or something was happening, uh, they would fast. So, for instance, if we look at David when his uh, baby was dying, right, uh, he fasted. He was seeking the Lord's will, and we can see what the result of that fast was. The baby died, he got up, washed his face, he says, well, what's done is done. It was sort of settled acceptance that happened by, uh, that sort of happened through his fasting and seeking the will of God. For us, and our purpose, as we study the text this morning, we need to understand by this time, fasting had grown to twice a week. Twice a week. Pharisees customarily fast on, fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. And by and large, because Pharisees throughout the, the, the Jewish nation were seen as models, emblematic of what the righteous life should be, when others saw them fasting twice a week, it became absorbed into the national psyche that everyone is supposed to fast twice a week. Text says, so some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Some people come and they say, why are they fasting? Why are they fasting, but your people are not fasting. It's an important piece because three pillars of Judaism at this time were actually almsgiving, so the giving of, of money and other things for those who were in need, um, prayer and fasting. Notice that the Pharisees themselves didn't come and say, we fast, how come you're not fasting? Or the disciples of John didn't come and say, well, we're fasting, how come you're not fasting? It was others. It was another group of people, a third party, as it were, who came and approached Jesus and said, we see these two groups fasting in accordance with what we understand the, the Old Testament to be teaching, our understanding of Judaism. Yet you guys and your disciples specifically are not. You see, people were watching Jesus to evaluate the veracity, the truth, the power of his message. And so they came and asked. You know, this is not something that's necessarily uncommon for us, all right? People are looking at us as followers of Christ, and they're evaluating the truth of our own walk. They're evaluating the power of Jesus in our own life by looking at the way we live. And what's crazy is, is they're looking through the presuppositions, just like many of us do, of their own understanding of what it means to live for God, of God's existence, of what it means to live the righteous life. I can give you a couple examples in my own life. First of all, I never open a conversation with, I'm a pastor. That is the best way to shut something down immediately, okay? Never. The other times are sometimes I'll interact with people who are from the church or who have been in the church for a long time. Maybe I invite them to my house. Maybe I have a meeting with them. Some you act weird. You act like you think that I want you to act because I'm the lead pastor. Just act like yourself. You're reading the situation through presuppositions of who you think a lead pastor should be, what a lead pastor might judge you for, what a lead pastor might hold you accountable for. Just be you. Different story, but the same idea is that we are all carrying around with us filters that we see the people in our lives and the life around us through. Not only that, we do this in our own walk when we deal with other Christians as well. We see our brothers and sisters worshiping, living life, acting in a certain way, and it brings suspicion to our minds. And you know I'm right because you guys do it. What kind of Christian wears an earring? What kind of Christian would wear that color hair? Or this kind of clothing? Or listen to that kind of music? Or this is my favorite one. I cannot believe they read that translation. All right? 
There was a whole meme one time that linked translations to certain kind of people. Like there was like the, the hipster millennials had this translation, these type of people have this translation. But you know what? It's funny because it's true, right? There is a, something that a translation of the Bible tells us, sort of we think, sort of telegraphs to one another the type of person they're dealing with. We do this all the time in our Christian life. We allow the way we understand our own faith to dictate the way we see other people's faith. And in response, we treat them differently. Or maybe we don't treat them at all. We see them behaving a certain way, wearing a certain way, talking a certain way, reading a certain way, and so we just distance ourselves and say either they're not like me, I'm going to stay away, or the worst one is I don't even know if they know the Lord. It's a dangerous judgment to make of, our, of the people around us. When I was learning to paint, I particularly loved landscapes. I still do. The truth is, is they're easier than other paintings. If you want to get some good low-hanging fruit when you're learning to paint, paint some landscapes. Like Bob Ross would say, you know, it's my world. I can create it the way I want. If I want a tree there, if I didn't want a tree there, happy accident. It doesn't matter. But either way, I would love painting landscapes. Once I painted a landscape with a huge mountain right in the center, it was okay. It wasn't great. I think I was pretty proud of myself at the time, but it was not exactly what I saw in my mind. Well, a few weeks later, after the painting had dried, I realized I'd learned a new technique for painting a mountain. So I reapproached the old painting, and I tried to do my new technique over the old mountain. And it was pretty good. The technique had worked. But the problem was, is I, the old mountain, the texture, because the oil paint was so thick, kept peeking through. So I wasn't able to apply my technique in a clear way, in a way that worked well, because what I had done before, what I had thought would work before, peek through the paint. I think you can see the, uh, the parallel here. It's sometimes when we are living life, we're trying to repaint an image, but we're allowing the presuppositions of what we've grown up with, what we've learned, what we think is right to peek through. And not only does it not give a clear image of the reality around us, it shows others what we once had painted on our hearts. In order to understand the Christian life and to give each other the grace that we need to thrive, we need to do the best we can to get rid, where appropriate, these presuppositions. We'll talk about this. Not all presuppositions or old ideas are wrong. Sometimes old ideas are exactly the ideas we should be carrying. What I really want us to see today is the importance of recognizing that we're even carrying presuppositions around you know, when I asked my teacher about how to fix the painting, he says, you can't. The paint's dry. There's nothing you can do. You're going to have to start completely over and do it on a brand new canvas. It doesn't matter how well you paint it. It's always going to peek through. You know, it's important for us to know that when we are looking at our life, when we are seeking to understand what it means to live for Christ and we're evaluating our presuppositions, that we have the willingness to let Jesus say, what you thought was true is not true. When I went to seminary, I was kind of shocked. You know, some people, and, and I think that it's probably a not, a not fair of an assessment, but some people who usually have not been to seminary like to call seminary cemetery, okay? Because they say it's a place where good Christians go to die, something like that, right? You get to seminary, you begin to learn all of these new things that are rarely taught in the church, maybe not rarely, but sometimes not taught in the church. It's a place of academic exposure where you're learning new ideas, you're evaluating new ideas, and oftentimes what I learned is I came away, thankfully, with a different understanding of God's word, God's kingdom, of how everything works together in the system of theology that I didn't have when I showed up. Didn't have. Part of going to seminary is having the willingness 
to hear out the arguments of the other. Part of going to seminary is having a willingness to not make a judgment before I've heard all of the points. Now, I'll tell you right now, I went to seminary and we learned, had to learn lots of perspectives. And some of the perspectives, <laughs> they're just wrong. There's no other way around it. They're just wrong, right? You look at God's word, it's clear, it's obvious. But there is a lot, a lot that is gray. There's a lot that is gray in our Christian walk. I mean, think about ethics. How do we apply the truth of the Bible to our day, day-to-day lives? Many times we don't know. That's why we ask God for help. Lord, I don't know what to do. The Bible says this. The Bible also says this. What do I say? What do I do? We don't know. In the end, it comes down to having a willingness to allow Jesus to repaint the presuppositions of our heart, to repaint the image, our image, what we believe to be true of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And it can be a scary thing. Sometimes we have to let go of some deeply held beliefs. And admit, finally, that they're just not in the Bible. Okay, I'll give you a perfect example, and you can email me later about it. I've talked about it before. Dancing. Dancing. There's a whole movie from the 80s. You guys know what I'm talking about. I can hear some of you hear the theme music in your mind right now. Footloose, right? Footloose. It's a whole movie, probably unfairly portrayed, but a whole movie about this idea that dancing is wrong, of the devil, sinful, so on and so forth. Yet we clearly see Nowhere in the Bible that it says that. In fact, we actually see David, King David, dancing, I would argue, kind of salaciously before before God himself, honoring God for what God has done. And the people around him, of course, told his wife, said, you're acting like an idiot. You shouldn't have done that. That judgment of preconceived notions. We need to be willing to let go of some of our pet ideals that are just not in the Bible, and start reading the Bible for what it says. Start believing God for what he's saying and the wholeness of what he's saying and not just sort of cherry-picking what's most important to us. So they allow Jesus to adjust their view. They come and they ask, why are they not fasting when these are? This is the second point. A clear picture of Christ emerges when we let him dictate our perspectives. A clear image of Christ emerges when we let him dictate our perspectives. Verse 19, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot as long as he is with them. Like the typical rabbi of the time, he answers a question with a question. You do this all the time. Jesus did this well. He says it doesn't make sense. And he uses the analogy of marriage customs. Now this case is rhetorical and it's an obvious answer. Is that could Think about it in your own life. If you went to a, pe- a wedding, and there was a huge reception, and someone just got married, would you fast? Would they say, well, sorry about the plates. You know, we were hoping to have chicken or beef, but we're going to have nothing, right? It doesn't match. It doesn't match. As long as there's a reason to celebrate, as long as the bridegroom is there, there should be a moment of celebration and joy. There should be celebration and joy. It's incompatible for there to be a fast at a wedding feast. This is the bottom line. If the Pharisees and the disciples of John understood the significance of the person of Jesus, they wouldn't fast either. They wouldn't fast either. I think some of us struggle with this idea of who Jesus really is and how Jesus wants to interact with us. We look at life and our religious life specifically as a sort of series of we must do these things. This is what we do. And we downplay the emphasis that Jesus is with us, that Jesus is with us. Our life should look different because of our relationship with Christ, 
more so than the rights we do for Christ. You know, there's a significance here of Jesus using this marriage analogy, more than just this idea of bridegroom and a party and fasting and so on and so forth. In the Old Testament, God himself was often called the bridegroom, husband, and lover of Israel. And so for Jesus to come and to use this analogy with these men who surely know the Bible, to use this analogy with these people and say, the bridegroom is here, he's really equating himself to God of the Old Testament. This is a point that's often missed when we read through passages like this, that Jesus again and again refers to himself in categories and metaphors and analogies of the Old Testament that equate to him being Yahweh. Yahweh. I remember when I first got saved and I first started really reading the Bible, it might not even have occurred before. It might have occurred before I got saved. I just know that there was a moment when that neuron, these two were going like this and they were getting closer and the neurons connected about that Jesus is God. And it unveiled everything that I was reading in the scripture. It was a huge advancement forward in understanding who Jesus was, what it meant to live the Christian life, and why much of what he says in the New Testament, completely astounding. Completely astounding. I began to read the New Testament with new eyes. I allowed God to speak to me and sort of repaint the presuppositions I had of Christianity. I was an atheist at the time. I thought y'all were crazy, brainwashed, deluded, wishful thinkers. Worse than that, I would say that Christians were abusing their kids for raising their kids as Christians. Don't talk to me about prayer. Remember, I'd call my mom all the time. My life's falling apart. Well, you know, Jesus, don't tell me. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. At that moment, when that was revealed to me by God's grace, neurons connected, my presuppositions completely changed. At that moment, I was pretty willing. <laughs> Please don't go to jail in order to get willing. Okay? You don't need to go to jail to get willing. But you need to be willing. And we need to allow Jesus to dictate the canvas on our hearts. We too often put Jesus in a box. We say Jesus can't do this or Jesus can do that. Or Jesus would be like this. This is a common thing that I hear right now, particularly as it relates to things like the pandemic. Well, you know, Jesus would wear a mask. Or Jesus would stand up against the government. Or Jesus would not take the immunization. Or Jesus, everyone wants to use Jesus for what they want to use Jesus for in order to get some sort of sanction for the thing that they want. The truth is, is that we need to let Jesus say what Jesus would do. And Jesus says a lot of stuff that we're not doing. <laughs> a lot of ways of living that he wants us to live. Sometimes we miss out on the things Christ wants us to do, be, and think in our lives because we're too worried about sort of the extras of the Christian life when he really wants us to just live the core. Just love one another. Just be unified with your brothers and sisters. Give grace. One of my favorite memes on social media, and I have tattoos, I'm going to put that out there before I tell the meme, okay? So I'm going to, is it's Jesus standing on the Sermon of the Mount, and he says, you shall love your brother, or you shall treat your brother as you want to be treated, the golden rule. And some, one guy raises his hand, he says, even people with tattoos? And Jesus says, yes, even idiots who ask stupid questions. <laughs> we allow our misunderstandings, our old notions and bad ideas to influence the way we see Christ in the present and it impacts the way we treat one another. It impacts the way we understand what it means to live for Christ. It impacts the way we raise our kids, we love our wives and husbands, the way we work. It impacts everything. 
old ideas cause us to filter out data about Jesus to only pick the things that we want. Half the church says that Jesus is 100% loving and would never condemn anyone. The other half of the church just wants to make Jesus a condemner, and that's all he does. The truth is, is that just like a painting with texture and depth and nuance, Christ has many facets, and we need to be willing to allow him to root out the things that do not represent him well. Verse 20. By the time, or, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. See, he does not deny the legitimacy of fasting itself. He's simply reframing it as now's not the right time. When he, in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about fasting being done in a certain way. When you fast, don't be miserable. Don't treat the people around you like dirt. Wash your face, do your hair, put on new clothes. Be quiet about it because it's between you and God, not to be done before others. This is the first time Jesus alludes to his own death in Mark where he says one day the bridegroom will not be with them and that day they will fast. People's failure, their presuppositions, prevented them from seeing the truth that Jesus would have to go to the cross. We see it again and again in the New Testament. He says he predicts his death again and again. They just don't get it. They cannot see what he's saying because their idea of who Jesus was was that he was a conquering king, a Messiah who would come and drive out the invaders, restore Israel to its former glory. But they allowed those old ideas to prevent them from seeing the truth. Third point from this morning. We must reject old ideas that are incompatible with a true picture of Christ. We must reject old ideas that are incompatible with the truth of Christ. Verse 21 and 22. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth from an old garment or on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Jesus tells his first parable in this gospel in order to draw their attention to their misunderstanding, to their old notion. He's addressing the core issue in their heart. You see, they were trying to reconcile what they understood about Judaism, what they understood about what it means to live a godly life with what they were seeing Jesus teaching and doing with his disciples. And they're trying to put them together. The Bible tells us that the Old Testament, particularly the first five books of the Bible that outline the law of God, the Torah, or the Pentateuch, it's called the law of God. The New Testament talks about grace coming through Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a line in John that says, the old, Moses gave the Old Testament law, but grace comes through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. What they were seeking to do is seeing how do these two things fit together? The truth is, is that they do not. The truth is, is that one has to be completely overtaken by the other in order for it to all make sense. They're trying to fit one system into another system and find a way to have them both. You see, they saw Jesus as just another religious leader. They saw him as just another typical rabbi who had disciples and followers who were teaching a certain way of life. They were not seeing Jesus for who he actually was, someone completely different. Now we know, looking back, God himself in the flesh. God himself in the flesh. See, Jesus was helping them to understand that it's impossible to reconcile two different categories together. That they cannot be mixed. We live our life under the law a lot. Do you realize that? Don't do this, do this. We carry around the guilt and shame of our, listen to these words, inevitable failure. Inevitable failure. 
instead of looking to the grace that's been shed upon us in Jesus Christ and seeking to live a different life, motivated and energized by that grace. And when we fail, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you that because I have fallen, I can get up and continue to walk. Thank you. Yet we live our life thou shalt not, instead of looking to see what Christ has already done and completed on our behalf. He gives two illustrations to, uh, to prove his point. The first one's regarding a patch. I mean, it makes sense. Unshrunk cloth, shrunk cloth. It's going to pull away the old garment. The second one's a little more nuanced. You have to understand what's going on here. So what they would use is they would use skins from animals and they would put wine that had been just barely fermented. Okay? The amount of sugar in grape juice has a certain... Um, there's only a certain amount of alcohol that a certain amount of sugar in grape juice can create, okay? What you do is once you mix sugar and grape juice, yeast from the environment gets into it. It begins to break down the sugars in the grape juice and produce ethanol. That's the alcohol portion of, of the wine. The byproduct of that process, carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide. So what happens is if you just start the fermenting process and you put it into a, a bag of skin, like goat skin, and you allow the wine to continue to ferment, it creates carbon dioxide, it expands the wineskin. And they get stretched to their extreme. Most of the time, there's not enough sugar in the wine to create enough carbon dioxide to break the wineskin. So what they do is you get a new wineskin, put the wine from the one into the next and allow the process to happen. What Jesus is saying is that if you take new wineskin, new wine, and you put it into an old, already stretched wineskin, when it begins to ferment, the bag's already at its breaking point, it's going to break. It's going to rip. And it's going to spill both the wine and ruin the wineskin that might have been used for some other purpose. The idea is, is that if you're trying to mix two things, one new and one old, it does not work. He's proving the point again that you cannot understand Jesus in the terms of the law. We cannot allow our presuppositions about what it means to be a Christ follower to dictate the way we see Jesus' new work in our lives. Sometimes we limit what he's capable of doing. I remember one time I wanted to help someone go on a uh, mission trip. They were a brand new believer. They had no idea how much a mission trip costs. I said, yeah, you want to go to this place? It's going to be awesome. They're all amped up. I said, you only have to come up with $3,500. And they were like, why would you do that to me? There's no way I can do that. And through the generosity of other believers, I think they had the money raised plus some before anyone else in the group. Like it was just like magic before them, how fast it happened, right? You cannot allow your previous ideas of what Jesus is capable of doing to impact the way you see what he's doing in your lives now. We struggle to understand Jesus, the kingdom of God, because we're trying to reconcile old ideas. We need to ask Christ to take them out. Part of the problem, I think, is I'm running out of time, so I'm talking a little bit faster. Part of the problem is, is we like the old wine better. We like the way we did it in the past better. We like the way we know better. So we don't want the new wine. Yet Christ is telling us that we cannot mix the old and the new. I think there's some reasons that we like that old wine better. First of all, it tastes better to us. In fact, that's actually true. Old wine, after it's been fermented over a period of time, particularly in the ancient Near East, the way they did it, it tasted better as time went on. And Jews sort of got intoxicated by their tradition. 
by the way they had lived life for so many years, and anything that came up against that was dangerous, particularly the Pharisees, who were convinced that the reason every bad thing happened to Israel was because people were not following the law. So there was a deep desire for them to continue following the law of of the Old Testament. Sometimes we don't like uncertainty. We'd rather have a wrong answer than no answer. Sometimes we would prefer to have a sense of control. If I can do this my way instead of relinquishing my situation to Christ and having to trust him for his answer, I'd rather do it like that. And I think the most important one is we don't like the implications. The implications of embracing a new idea about Jesus. For instance, I'm living a sinful life. If I embrace that Jesus is telling me that's wrong, I have to stop living this sinful life. This is not just unbelievers. This is all of us. All of us have these moments where God is calling us to live differently in light of new information about who Christ is, information that we've allowed him to repaint in our hearts. Sometimes we need to live life differently. Maybe I'm prioritizing the wrong things. Or, this is a hard one, if I believe this truth about Jesus, it has implications for someone I love. I don't like those implications, so I'm going to believe something different about Jesus. Yet Jesus is asking you and calling you to trust him and to trust the people you love around you with the, that truth. You see, we need to reject old ideas. Rejecting old ideas does not mean that everything we know is wrong or suspect. What we need is to look at Christ, ask him, Lord, what is it that I need to change? What is it that you need to change in my heart? What am I believing wrong? And then have the willingness to let him do it. Several weeks later, after I had painted my mountain over my old mountain, I found again that I had painted myself into a dead end. I had had a brand new canvas. I had intended to do it the way that I wanted to do it, the new way. Yet there was something so inviting about doing it the way I knew. I was fearful about doing something different. So I did it the way I knew. And again, of course, it didn't look right. So I called my teacher over and I said, what do I do? I didn't. He goes, well, do you trust me? Never a good question to have anyone in prison ask you, but you're like, do you trust me? I said, sure. He took up my palette knife and he scraped it off of my pick right down the center of the painting. I wanted you to fix it, not ruin it. He goes, I did fix it. I said, what do you mean? He goes, what happened last time? You painted over that paint, you could see the paint underneath and it never looked right. This is an opportunity for you to start over. This is how you do it. As long as the paint's wet, you scrape it off. You paint in the mountain the way that you want it. You can even control where you're scraping so you do the least amount of damage, but scrape it off. Don't paint over what you've already painted wrong. We all need to work and have an attitude in our lives about keeping the paint on our heart wet. Sometimes, and some of us, have allowed things to dry that no amount of changing, no amount of our own working in it is going to take it out, that only Jesus can do that. But in the interim, while we're living life, we need to seek to hold things with an open hand and allow Jesus to come in and make any changes that he wants so he can paint the picture of what life really is, what reality truly is, instead of what we hoped it is or what we want it to be. We need to trust him with the palette knife on our heart to remove old ideas. As we look at God's word, as we pray to him, having this realization that, Lord, I might be seeing you wrong. I might be seeing you wrong. Show me your truth can pay astronomical dividends in our Christian walk as we allow Jesus to repaint the picture. So, three points. Old ideas obscure a clear picture of Christ and his kingdom. Two, a clear picture of Christ emerges when we let him dictate 
our perspective. And three, we must reject old ideas that are incompatible with the true picture of Christ. So I ask you, what in your life is indicating that you're seeing Jesus wrong? Is there a person that you're interacting with that just something's going on, but it might not be them. It might be your understanding of what it means to live a godly life. Is there something in your heart that needs to go? Maybe some idea. God doesn't love you. It's too dangerous. I can't do this. I'll never be different. Is there some aspect of the landscape of your heart that needs to be removed and readjusted by what Christ has done, letting him come in and adjust it? I pray that you would have willingness to do that. Today, this week, ask yourself what it means to live differently and ask yourself what needs to change and trust him to do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this message. Lord, I pray that you work through me and you get the message to who needs to hear it, the way they need to hear it, and specific to their own lives. I thank you, Lord, that you are here and you are applying these things. I pray, Lord, that you would bless the final moments of our worship. Help us to be, remain focused on you, not only as we leave, but the rest of our week, because it's so easy to get caught up. And Lord, we ask that you would fix where we have you wrong. Fix the paintings of our heart. Help us keep our paint wet and to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.